Yeah, it was 97 and it was a very unique event that came across Central Europe. It is uh, one of the first events what brought East Germany and West Germany more together. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. In the summer of 2021, floods in Germany made international headlines. Ever since that event, I've wanted to feature my long distance and long-term friend Stefan Kray as a guest on the podcast to hear his perspective on flood protection in Germany. Stefan Kray was born and grew up in northern East Germany. He finished high school in 1989, the same year that the Berlin Wall came down, then graduated from college for building and trade in Sherwin and later the University of Applied Sciences in Wismar in civil engineering. From the first days on the job, he was involved in the biggest levy rehabilitation program in Germany in the aftermath of the Central European flood in 1997. He stayed on this project until 2019. Through this project and other dam and levee projects, he became an expert in flood protection and hydrology. He's a member of the Camber of Engineers, BWK, ASCE, and ASDSO, and was an expert in the German Water Standards Committee, DIN. Mr. Cray works for Fitchner Water and Transportation in Hamburg, Germany, and he's assigned to hydraulic engineering projects in the Port of Hamburg and the Kiel Canal Extension Project. The podcast starts off with a live recording I did with Stefan Cray, the first time we ever met in person. <laughs> Stefan, we've been friends for quite a while, uh, talking about everything from floods and hydrology and climate to American football. I know you're a, a big fan of uh, American football. We've had many conversations about the New Orleans Saints and Drew Brees and things like that. You're, uh, you've been a really interesting friend over the years, and today we're meeting in person for the first time. Yeah, it's 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 quite interesting for me to, to meet you in person. We wrote a lot emailed and sometimes over social media but we never met in person we never met in person until today but i feel like i've gotten to know you through the years you're you're very plugged in with severe weather extreme weather many times you've told me about a severe storm say on the north sea affecting germany or you're very plugged in with the united states hurricanes things like that so we've had a lot of back and forth communication about extreme weather events yeah i'm i'm really interesting in u.s weather and uh, the the hurricane season season and it is very interesting for me to explore different things from a european perspective it's normal to to have all the european weather events in in the temperate climate but a tropical climate is a whole different thing it's really different so originally you're from from europe you know you're a very international person uh, could you share a little bit about your background I'm not so international. Um, I grew up in East Germany when the wall was still active and I started to study in, in the 1990s and I graduated in, in 1999 in civil engineering and I got a job in north of Berlin and we started to, to make a levy rehabilitation and it turned out it was the aftermath of the 1997 Central European flood where we uh, rehabilitated all the levies and I was involved in this project since my first day in job. Was your interest more, say, like climatology and hydrology or more engineering? What was your interest really coming from? I'm active in, in geotechnical engineering and, and uh, flood protection systems. And 
all the the uh, hydrology and uh, climatology is very bound to this thing when i have to to build a new levee i have to know how high the water will rise and then i have to look into the statistics and i have to look into the impacts how changes uh, the when the weather changes how does it affect the levee system mm -hmm. and we built the levee for about 100 years and this is a long pro projection into the future you know when we look at flood protection and we are trying to project potential flood levels, we can turn to modeling to say what can happen in the future, but it's also valuable to look back into history. It seems like um, parts of Europe have very extensive flood histories. Is that correct? This is, is correct. Most of the gauges are from end of the 19th century to today, and some parts have a very long uh, record. I'm working right now on the record of storm searches in the city of Hamburg, and we have a long record. It goes back to 1661. The record shows all the storm searches above four meters, and yeah, we, we see... Uh, A lot of changes there there it's a the sea level rise what we see and it's a the artificial impact what we are due to river systems and our our coastlines wow that is tremendous so you have records going back in hamburg to 1661 for flood levels that that's really almost 400 years of observations do you see changes over time do you see um, clusters of times where there were maybe multiple floods i mean what do you see when you look back at that record i see a very stable tidal range until the first part of the 20th century and then we see an increase when it comes to the tidal range in 90 30, we had a tidal range of 1 meter 80, and uh, actually we are at almost 4 meters. So for our American listeners, what Stefan is saying is that the tidal range in Hamburg, Germany back in 1930 used to be 1.8 meters. That's about six feet. That's the difference really between high tide and low tide. It was six feet, but now it's up around four meters, which is around 13 feet. So the tidal range has more than doubled in Hamburg, Germany. Um, It's because of the the dredging in the in the Elbe River, where Hamburg is situated, and they want to invite all the big container ships 400 meters long, and they are dredging the navigation channel down to minus 17 meters to uh, let them in. So they're deepening and maybe widening the um, the channel to allow larger ships in, but this is changing and increasing the tidal range. Yes, it is. Does it also increase the potential for storm surge flooding? I'm not sure about this. We see when after each uh, dredging period, we see a, a decrease of the low uh, tidal uh, of the low tide. And we see an increase um, when they started to, to uh, increase their flood protection. Uh, about 60 years ago, Hamburg was hit by a very serious storm surge and one-sixth of the city was flooded. And they started to increase the, the um, flood protection system by um, almost three meters. 
And this had a huge impact on the storm surge. Can we talk about this specific flood event? So when, what month and year did that event happen? Can you recall? It must have been February 62, February 1st or 2nd. It was a very strong winds coming from the northwest and pushing all the water into the river. Hamburg is not actually on the coastline. It's 100 miles away uh, up the the Elbe River. And And the water just pushed up the river like that? Yes. And the water came into the mouth of the river and pushed all the water up to, to the city. And when the load tide came, it had no uh, way to go out. And then the next flood, uh, the next wave pushed into the city again. In the early 60s, if you had a guess, how high do you think the flood defenses would have been if, if you had to take a rough idea? It was exactly the same as uh, as high as the storm surge was. It was uh, 6.20 meter 20. So the storm surge came up that high, right to really the top of the flood defense in the early 60s? Yes, it was exactly the same height as this uh, flood defense was. So that's getting up to about 20, 21 feet or so, and it's it's getting right up to the top. So how were there a lot of flood victims? Were there people that actually died in the flood or drowned, or was it just a lot of uh, homes inundated? It was a lot of homes inundated, yes. It was the night flood and the people were were at home and they didn't have the chance to go out. So if the flood water got to the top of the levees, did it go over in some places or did it how was there flooding? It gone over the dike or the, the levee and they had about one hundred breaches. And there are pictures in the internet where you can see breach, levee, breach, levee, all. So the water, I see. So the water level got near the top of the levees, but in in many places it breached. Yes. The, so the, a lot of water got into the city. The whole city, uh, the whole uh, system collapsed. I see. And then the response after this, they built the levees higher? Yes. The, um, they started to, to increase the, the levee height by three meters. And um, they see actually, uh, it's a it's a kind of competition who is who is faster. Um, every time you increase the levee, then the next storm surge get, gets higher, because they build barriers to shorten the the levee system and all the small channels and rivers next to to each other, where you have the the potential to have a re- re- retention volume. It's closed off. So you really have a closed system there. So when you when you build higher defenses or more closed defenses, then the, you're actually forcing the water to go even higher. Is that right? Yes, it's 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 correct. The water has to go somewhere, right? So if you're going to enclose it, it's going to even go up higher. Yes, sure. And when every every tide has a certain amount of of water that goes into the the river system. Every time you you have a tide that goes into the river system, you have a certain amount of water going up to the to the uh, Elbe River. You have the water has to stay somewhere. Mm. So so and when you narrow the the, the path of the river, 
or you reduce the volume where the water can can stay so the next storm surge will be higher i have to ask you so you know growing up in east germany and the you know in the time before the wall had come down after the wall came down did did life seem very different did your perspective on things change you're very into science and engineering were you did you always have those interests and curiosities or when you look back at your life do you see like a before and after the wall uh, i can clearly see a life before and a life uh, afterwards east germany was a closed country and you didn't have the ch chance to go out i think you could go in one country without uh, any visa and it was a czech republic or czechoslovakia in this time and my parents didn't travel a lot and so we stayed in in our region and it was a country like uh, the size of of massachusetts new hampshire and vermont so pretty small area and restrictions that you can't really come and go yes you you didn't have such a chance to to go out and yeah when the wall came down the whole world was open for us and what was that describe that i mean what was that like when can you recall you know in the late 80s there when the wall came down this the the year 1989 was a strange year people started to to get uncomfortable with the situation and they had the new leader in in, in the soviet union gorbachev and the people wanted to have the change what they have seen in in the soviet union they wanted to have the change as well in in, in east germany and then there was a tipping point i guess it was 1989 uh, it was in may and they started to to um, cut the the border protection in in hungary And people in, in East Germany saw it on, on television and they saw, oh, the Iron Curtain got a hole. And people started to to uh, head into the West in, in summer. So they, they sneaked uh, in, in Hungary uh, across the border and they had a huge uh, refugee problem in the summer. I mean, a lot of people from um, the more closed areas were saying, hey, there's a hole in the wall in Hungary. Let's go there. Yes. Um, Hungary was a, was a nice place for, for East Germans to, to uh, have vacation in the summer. And um, Hungary is, is bordering to, to Austria. And this was an iron curtain. And people started to, to uh, go through this area it were they going for a holiday and coming back or were a lot of people just leaving um once you you left the the country then you had didn't have the chance to go back wow so it was in a, in a way of unknown uncertain risky but probably a lot of people wanted to try it right it was very risky it was still highly uh, i don't know the word right now it's it was uh, very dangerous sure they they had Uh, armed police there and it was a huge risk for them to flee well I, I i could see that right so there was probably a lot of fear involved but then people uh, i mean we're, we're drawn towards freedom right so people probably were taking the risk i don't know if if it was only the freedom they saw the the higher uh, life standard in the west and When you live in East Germany, you always had the chance to watch West German television. And 
it was you was a little bit jealous because they are so rich they had the nice cars they had nice clothes they had nice televisions and, and at this point the border is completely closed between east and west germany right um Be before 1989 it was not completely closed um west germans could come in or east german uh, senior people could go out interesting so um i was I was not able to 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 visit my my family in the west. Oh, so you had family in West Germany? Yes, nearly every family had had relations to the west, and um, I had an aunt and an uncle and uh, yeah cousins. And Were you able to keep in touch with them through letters and things like that? Yeah, they 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 wrote letters and we we wrote letters and they sent packages to us. And um, my mother was able to go once to the um, 20th, 25th anniversary to her brother. And that was it. Yeah, so besides that, you're really, in a way, um, kept in the, in the East and not allowed to travel. Yes. And then November 9th uh, was a special day. And... I didn't, I didn't uh, realize immediately what it meant. The person in the, in the government says uh, all people in East Germany are free to leave the country. It was an announcement at 9.30. So wait, let's, let's, you have to remember this moment. Were you watching this on television? Did you hear it on radio? Like, where were you when this news came out? I was I was in 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 a lab, and I switched on the radio, and the people said, "the the the border is open, the border is open." I I said, oh, "What he's talking about?" And I shut down the lab, and I go upstairs, uh, looked into the television, and then they sent it in the television, and the the East German official said. All people are free to leave the country. Did that just seem like unimaginable? I mean, this this is unbelievable news, right? This is unbelievable. And what I think and I'm thankful for, uh, no one of the border police in East Germany didn't know about this. Though the people came to the to the wall in Berlin and to the to the border, and they said, mm, "The official says we are." we can go and they said no we have no information about this so the border police the border security did not have that directive or they they, they didn't know that they didn't know that and it took hours to uh to, that they didn't realize what's going on there and someone lost his his, his nerves and he said nobody wants to talk with me then i let them out so he opened the wall. One of the border one people. One of the border people, yes. Wait, this is border patrol. Had op in one place opened the wall. Um, it was it was was first in one place, and then it was like a levee breach. <laughs> <laughs> it was like flooding, but flooding with people. Flooding, yes, it was. I think well, hundreds of thousand people uh, flooding West Berlin in this night. You mean just to go, you can cross, you can go, you can yes. leave. Yes. But so a mad rush of people across the wall. Yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't 
quite interesting year. We saw iconic pictures in the in the U.S. here of maybe people with like axes on the wall and trying to. I mean, was that happening a lot, or more were people just trying to cross over and not necessarily take the wall down? Um, they wanted to have a a piece of a souvenir, of the, a souvenir, <laughs> and I did it myself. And I have a thing uh, like two pounds, three pounds heavy in in my in my bag. Um, and it 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 sa- it stands on my on my desk, and uh, when I have to uh, to remember, I said uh, this is from the Berlin Wall, right next to the Reichstag building. So uh, you heard this announcement at nine thirty in the morning. Did you go right away that no. day to the wall, or nine thirty at night? Nine thirty at night. Oh, it was it was at the night that they made the announcement, and then did you go right away to the wall? No, no, no. no, no. I was not in Berlin. I was in uh, Schwerin. That's in north northeast Germany, and we did we go out and we we had a couple of of drinks this night, and we we were celebrating, and. Actually, I was a first time two weeks later. So two weeks later, you crossed over. Yes, it was. Uh, then the the thing settled down a little bit, and sure. they they had to figure out how to how to handle this amount of people uh, coming to the west. Where's the first place you went when you went to the west? Did you visit your family or see a certain location? So we visited the city of Lübeck. It's right on the on the border, and I visited my family in December, over New Year's Eve. I'm always interested in linguistics. Were there any differences in dialect or speech between East and West Germany, or really no observable differences? There are no ob- obvious uh, differences between East and West, but when you are talking with people, the the life was very different over the 40 years of being apart and left scars. People developed uh, in in different directions. And I worked the last year in Hamburg and I see a huge difference between East Germans and West Germans still. And it's still to this day, you can see some some big differences. Yes, you can can see the, the difference. It's a kind of small difference, but you can still see them. Yes. Would you mind sharing, like, what's what's one difference that you would see between someone from East Germany and West Germany? So in West Germany, it's normal that women are staying at home, while the men goes at work. And in in East Germany, it was normal that everyone has to work. So. You have still the mindset in in West Germany that the wife should belong to the children and be at home and care for for the family. And in in East Germany, you have the mindset, oh, you can do whatever you want. And women are more, they are proud of what they achieved and they, they have this... It's the same level of payment. They receive nearly the same. And there are no big difference between men and women at work. That's really interesting. So really a difference in gender there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You, you, can, you can still observe this, yeah. 
Um, Stefan, we were talking too about your your interest in in these climate issues and flooding issues and engineering, and so, I mean, getting into the '90s, it seems like there was there were some big floods, right? Was it '97, I believe that? Yeah, it was '97, and it was a very unique event that came across Central Europe. It is uh, one of the first events what brought East Germany and West Germany more together. It was a rare weather event. It called a 5B low-pressure system. Uh, European uh, low pressures are developing around the area of Iceland. And then the the low-pressure system travels mostly uh, southeast. And this system travels all across the British Isles and France through the Mediterranean Sea, and then it makes a turn and go up east of the Alps. What time of the year was this 1997 storm? It's uh, summer. It was summer. It was, I think it was July. Was this more of a heavy rain event or more storm surge or kind of both? No, it was only heavy rain. It was um, the the low pressure system soaks all the moisture over the Mediterranean Sea and dumped it over the Czech Republic, southeast Germany and Poland. And the area of the Oder River plain was uh, really hit hard. So a lot of runoff coming down from the hills and mountains? Yes, it was about... 150 millimeters over a course of a day or, or two days and when you have this amount of water into the the flood system or, or flood plain then you you got huge destructions it's especially in Poland Poland was hit very hard and Germany was very lucky and this the Oder River is part of the eastern border to Poland and the levee system there was about 100 years old and they didn't took care of it really good and then we had you had in 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 east germany you had some some breaches and some flooded villages but the most damages are happened in poland and, and czech republic Stefan, you said this event was one of the first events to really bring East and West Germany together. This is eight years after the Berlin Wall came down. How did it bring the two sides together? This was a very unique event, and people in West Germany saw the destruction, and they thought, whoa, they had to struggle a lot with with the aftermath of the situation. And politicians uh, took care of it. They... Chancellor Kohl was running for for Chancellor again and he was in the polls, he was behind his his opponent and he said, wow, let's make the levies safer. We are one nation and we we could do this. And they started to have the first big scale levy rehabilitation program. And when I graduated, I was thrown into it from the first day in job. Well, so this was really one of your first jobs working in flood protection was really after that 97 yes. event. It was it was 2 years after this and we my my first day at job was uh, look at this paper 
and uh, tomorrow we are going to the to the levy and we are meeting this person and this person and this person and we have to to make sh uh, sure that the plans we are working on are good enough to go through the process to to get evaluated and th that we have the permit to do the work. Stefan, we're picking up, we're talking about these levy systems in Germany. You're very well familiar with them. You've worked extensively. You've explained to me that there are some really high levies along the North Sea. They're a little bit lower on the Baltic Sea, and both of those are coastal from saltwater floods. But there's also very, a very extensive levy system in Germany along the river systems as well, right? Yes, nearly every large river has an own levy system. The states are have the have the obligation to protect the people and they are liable to any damages through flood. So if someone gets damages through flood, then he is uh, the state is liable to reimburse some damages. That's really interesting. I think that's quite different than the perspective on flooding and flood protection in the U.S. Is that correct? I think so, yes. Uh, what I saw so far in the U.S. is it is very different. You have the closed infrastructure protection system on the North Sea, which covers the whole sea coast. And if you If you are traveling through Germany and you want to, to go to the beach, you have to go over a levee somehow. And it's every single meter uh, of, of shoreline is an artificial um, thing. So you're saying in Germany, the entire coastline has protection? Yes. And in the States, from uh, what we were, you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, in general, that's not the case. So I didn't see any major uh, protection systems. I was in 2018 in, in the southeast at the Atlantic coast, and I saw all the, the elevated buildings, but not structure to protect the city or, or to protect any villages or industrial systems. So what were your thoughts of that? You're driving along the southeast Atlantic coast, maybe Florida, Georgia, or the Carolinas, and all of a sudden you're seeing town after town where buildings are put up in the air, but we do not really have the infrastructure along the coast with levees or dikes or uh, systems like that to protect against flooding. So it's kind of weird for me to see this, but it's I think it's a huge importance for the ecology as well. You have all the, the wetlands and systems where, where floods uh, soak up water and protect further damages more inland. In Germany, would you say it's more a collective mindset or more of a system as opposed to U.S., maybe more individual choices? Like, okay, do I want to build on this land? And then in the U.S., is it more up to the individual to choose if and how they want to protect themselves? Yes, it is. And in Germany, you have the protected zones. And you, when you get your, your building permit, then all is, is done right. You have the flood risk maps where you can look up, not the flood risk uh, area. Or, yeah, then, then you have to look it up. And if the levy fails, you have major damages. And so it's... Uh, It's a like con collective mindset that you, this the people saying the government will do it for me, so and not for ourselves. Stefan, could you explain a little bit about the work and research that you're doing in Germany right now? I work for a German company. 
And we are we have projects in the port of Hamburg, and we have projects to uh, renew the Kiel Canal. It's it's an extension project that they can put bigger ships through it, and yeah, this is my my actual work. How do you feel? This is so interesting. Your perspective on the U.S. and Germany. You've uh, you know spent extensive time in both places. How do you feel that maybe the U.S. can learn from Germany, or Germany can learn from U.S.? Or do you see the systems as as very different and maybe incompatible? The differences are huge, but each country can learn from each other. What I think the U.S. can learn is the technology Germany uses for flood protection. We put a lot of efforts into into levee rehabilitation and build high defense systems. And maybe Germany can learn from how to deal with major flood events. When I see, or I see a big difference into the impacts when hurricane, I don't know the name, 2017, what, uh, when, when Houston was flooded. Yeah, hurricane Harvey dumped a yeah. tremendous amount of rain. Yes, I think it was 50 inches of rain, and you you don't have this in Germany. Actually, this summer was a big flood event in, in Western Germany, and they had five inches of rain. Right, so the volume of rain or the magnitude of these flood events may be um, greater in some parts of the states, just yes. the, the amount of rain we're seeing from these tropical storms. Yes, and the the natural river systems are helping the U.S. to mitigate the, the effects of these amount of rainfall. I see all the wetlands and I see uh, natural rivers without levee systems or you see all the normal river systems that you don't have in Germany. They have a huge history of hydraulic engineering in, in, in Central Europe to make more land accessible. Mm-hmm. And the US has lots of land to for, for their people and they don't have to go into the, the river systems and floodplains. Do you feel to some extent that the U.S. just accepts large catastrophes, including huge economic damages and fatalities? We've had big storms in the States where maybe 60 or 70 people die, and sometimes it's almost shared in a context like, oh, it could have been so much worse. I've wondered if you get to Europe and you had 60 people die, would that be looked at very differently, like this is a failure of the system? As opposed to in the U.S., I think sometimes that's viewed as an act of God, like, you know, nothing could have been done. So the the flood event I spoke about a few minutes ago in Western Germany in this year had 60 fatalities as well. And every life loss is a cat- catastrophe for itself. But it's a, a kind of risk assessment what you have to do. When, when cities are, are building new homes in, in floodplains, then you have to calculate the risk. And you you can build on floodplains and and build a flood protection around it, but it makes it worse for the neighbor. So, and this is what Germany has to learn, that every system you improving makes it for your neighbor worse. So, like we said, there's a finite no- amount of water. If it's not going here, then it's going somewhere else. It's uh, yeah, exactly. We had a fluvial flood in in two thousand two. It was called the centennial flood uh, by the media, 
and huge cities in, in southeast Germany were flooded and ex, uh, Prague was flooded, Dresden was flooded and all the cities upstream of the Elbe. Then they started to build higher levees, they started to do more flood protection and then the year 2013 came and it was a similar event but Dresden stayed dry but then the the uh, towns and cities up uh, downstream had this uh, this big struggle to to handle the amount of water because every flood protection you are doing is makes it worse for the for the neighbor I thought it was really interesting to mention that if you save one person from flooding, maybe their neighbor to the right or left is actually making it worse for them. Stefan, I wanted to ask you, so there's a monument that's been put up in Germany related to your flood protection work. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I have actually a, a monument with my name on it, and it was uh, in 2006, and we helped to protect the village from flooding. And the people there was were so thank, thankful that they put up a monument with the names on it who were responsible for the makeshift levy we built in 24 hours. You know, I love that story because it shows that people really appreciated the work that you've been doing. And, you know, it's always good when people that are working in hydrology and climate science and things like that are, are recognized because it's work that's really helping save people's lives. Yeah, it was a great honor for us. And they invited me to reveal the new built levy and they put up a monument with my name on it. It's unbelievable for me still. Well, congratulations about that. That's really exciting. What was the name of that community again? It was a community of Demke Elversdorf. It's it's in the Elbe floodplain. And they got flooded 2002 very seriously because they thought they were on, on a good elevation. But the surveyor made a mistake and, and put a wrong number in, into his survey. So they were actually one meter deeper than they thought of and they were flooded. And uh, four years later, there was again a flood on the same level and they asked if we can do something for for them. And we had plans in, in our drawer and we, we pulled it out and said, yeah, we had to, to build a makeshift levee and we did it a couple of hours before the, the flood set in. So how did you build this makeshift levee? It was, uh, yeah, they they got all the dirt they could find and they, they pulled out all their machinery they had. And um, it was simply a pile of dirt with uh, uh, caterpillars built. And you did this within like 24 hours of the flood? It was a huge, huge thing and i think there were two caterpillars and uh, six big caterpillar dumpers and they w were working 24 hours without uh, uh, any breaks just really a rush to get that flood protection in before the inundation yes yes yeah. it was uh, it was really in the in the last couple of minutes that we finished the flood protection Well, I can understand why they were so appreciative. You really helped save that community. So it was a big thing for them, yes.
Stefan, thank you so much for taking time sharing your perspective on climate and flood systems. Any other thoughts or questions or anything else you'd like to add for uh, listeners of the GeoTrack podcast? Germany and Europe has a long history of protection. The When you look back into old cat catastrophes, the people started to protect themselves. And it developed over the centuries to the system like it is today. And most of the settlers came in... 100 years ago, 200 years ago, to live in, in the U.S. or in, the, in the, these areas. And they chose to mostly to go to elevated systems. And now they are spreading out into the floodplains. And this is a, quite new for the area here. And in, in Germany, the people started to go out and doing their agriculture in, in floodplains for centuries. So I worked in levee systems where they made huge developments in hydraulic engineering and new river systems 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or maybe 200 years ago, they, they closed complete uh, lowlands with an with a 8-meter levee in, in, in the Oder River. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a historic thing to, to have these um, systems. Maybe it it will develop over the years in the U.S. as well. But I think it's a very complicated thing. You cannot compare the, the systems. They seem very different. And it, it sounds like what you're saying is in the U.S., um, maybe it's not as well-developed of a system as it is in, in Germany. It's, it's history, huh? Yeah, yeah. maybe amount of time that people live there, right? I mean, we still look at places in South Florida, like nobody lived there 20 years ago. And now these communities have popped up. It's just that we don't have the history maybe as well. We're, we're building new construction in areas where there were no people before. Yeah, when you, when you have uh, people who have not enough money to go to a proper developed area, then they choose to, to live in floodplains. Yeah. So, and this settlements are flood prone and they have to deal with it yeah. since they are made the development yeah. so yeah maybe it will develop over the years and they start building levees as well but then you you start to 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 uh, to do the race who is who's uh, <laughs> who's going to be first to build the levee and then yeah. the other communities are worse off nearby yeah. exactly yeah. Stefan, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom about flood protection on the GeoTrek podcast. This episode had an international perspective as we heard Stefan Cray's account of what it was like in East Germany when the Berlin Wall came down, learned about the 1962 flood in Hamburg, and heard how the 1997 flood actually brought together a reunited Germany. We learned about Stefan's comparison between flood protection systems in Germany and the U.S. and heard a consistent perspective that when one community builds levees and flood walls, it makes future floods more severe for neighboring communities. We love this type of podcast at GeoTrek because it goes deep into philosophies of hazard protection from a bird's eye view and an international lens. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey, 
Hey, GeoTrackers, thanks so much for your faithful support of our movement. Please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and join us in our Facebook group to continue the conversation. We view each podcast episode as a starting point, not a finish line, to introduce you to a new topic, and our online community is there to give you a place to discuss these topics, interact with others in the community, and sometimes interact directly with the podcast guest. Thanks for being part of the GeoTrack community.